Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. Hello, everyone. It is Stephanie, and boy, do I have a story for you. I want to talk to you about Bruce Lee and his son, Brandon, but there's so much to tell you about Bruce's life that his story will be at least two parts. In preparation for this story, I read Bruce, A Life by Matthew Polly. As always, it was filled with so much information about his life and plenty of quotes from friends and family about who he was. It was such a good read, and I definitely recommend it if you're interested in learning more, as I can't possibly include everything he talked about here. Before reading the book, I knew of Bruce Lee and was familiar with his book, Tao of Jeet Kune Do, and of course, I did see some of his movies when I was a child. He was part of a big change in the movie industry to move away from using yellow face and actually use actors who were Asian. Not only that, but he was trying to write and produce films and TV shows with Chinese leads who kicked butt in a time where they normally played the manservant or the sidekick with very few lines. Bruce had a vision for his life, and no matter how many times he was knocked down, he always seemed to leap right back up and keep on fighting to make it happen. So you can imagine when he suddenly died at 32, it was a shock to everyone who knew him. For this first part, we're going to go back to the beginning and talk about his parents, his birth, his childhood, up until his arrival in America. There's a lot to discuss, so I hope you're ready. Bruce was born to Lee Hoi Twin and Grace Ho. His father, Hoi Chuen, was taken in as an apprentice to a famous Cantonese opera singer at the age of 10. He had been working at a restaurant and yelling out the menu when the singer heard him and was impressed by the humor in his voice. He would say goodbye to his parents and go with the singer to learn the ins and outs of Chinese opera that would be a lifelong career for him. To us in 2022, it sounds kind of crazy to think that you would send off such a young child with a stranger, but this was 1914. The Qing Dynasty was just overthrown, and this was an opportunity that his parents saw for him to have a career and rise out of the poverty that he lived in. Grace Ho was from a very different background than Hoi Chuen. She was from a very wealthy and influential family. They were considered Eurasian as her grandfather was from Holland and her grandmother was Chinese. Her mother was her father's secret British mistress, even though he already had 13 concubines. She was given up to her father to be raised, and she was his 13th child. Since she was one half English, a quarter Dutch Jewish, and a quarter Chinese, she had a very European upbringing. She studied to be a nurse and converted to Catholicism. She was very much against her father's family's traditional way of living in polygamy, and she wanted to be in a monogamous relationship. She's in her early 20s, single, wealthy, and independent. And her uncle invited Li Hoi Chuen's opera troupe to his mansion for a performance for his friends. Grace asked her uncle if she could attend, and she ends up seeing a handsome young man with impeccable comedic timing. After seeing Li Hoi Chuen perform for 10 minutes, she was in love because he made her laugh. Who doesn't love a man who can make you laugh? She decided at that moment 
She wanted to be with him and completely ahead of her time, she decided to pursue him. Against the wishes of her family and with the threat of being cut off financially, she married him. She cut ties with her family for the man that she loved and I couldn't think of a better love story. They were a very traditional Chinese family where Grace took care of the home and produced heirs while Li Hui Chuan would provide for the family. Grace would give any money she made to her husband. He would give his money to his mother. And according to their oldest daughter, her grandmother would take some and give the rest back. She would say that when her father would refuse to take money back, her grandmother would tell him to take the money as if it was a gift from her. When it came to their children, they were very superstitious and did what they felt would prevent bad omens from plaguing their children. The first child should be a son, which is what they got, but unfortunately he would die in infancy, which was pretty common at the time. The second child should be a girl, and even though Grace was already eight months pregnant, they adopted a baby girl just in case. They believed that if she had another son who did not have an older sister, he could be in danger. She would give birth to a girl and would end up having two baby girls that are just 40 days apart in age. The next child that they would have would be a son who was to have his ears pierced immediately, given girls clothing and a girl's nickname to trick the boy hunting devil and keep him from danger. Some of these things to us are going to sound crazy as we know that there isn't going to be a boy hunting devil and we probably don't have as many superstitions nowadays as they did back then. But it is really interesting to hear about the traditions and the superstitions that they had in the early 1900s in China. I think that some of that stuff is things that they really thought were going to protect their children and keep them alive and keep them healthy at a time where child death, especially in infancy, was probably extremely high for a rate. And it's just because they didn't have the proper medical care um, that we do now that would be able to prevent those things from happening. Unfortunately, in 1937, Japan would launch a full-scale invasion on China. Hong Kong served as a critical supply line for the Chinese's resistance and as a refugee camp. When the war between England and Germany began in 1939, China was convinced that the British Navy would protect them, but in their eyes, they didn't expect Hong Kong to hold for long and delayed any action and assistance. Li Hui Chuan's opera troupe was invited for a year-long tour of America in 1939 to raise funds for the support of China in the war. But there was one stipulation that he could only bring one person with him. Hoi Chuan's mother convinced Grace to go with him and leave her three young children behind so he wouldn't be tempted by someone else and the promise that she would keep the children safe. Hoi Chuan and Grace Ho applied for their visas on November 15, 1939 and arrived in the San Francisco Bay on December 8, 1939. At the time of the United States, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was still in effect and banned all immigration of low-skilled Chinese laborers. But luckily, they were on a work visa, and this saved them a lot of time and effort to get into the country. They were greeted by a representative from the Mandarin Theater, where Hoi Chuan would be working, and were guided to their temporary residence in Chinatown. They were only one block away from the Chinese hospital, which would turn out to be a convenient location. Because in April, Grace would discover she was pregnant again and would give birth to a healthy baby boy at 7.12 a.m. on November 27th of 1940. He was named Bruce Lee as suggested by the nurse who assisted in the delivery, and Grace chose his Chinese name as Li Junfan. The non-immigrant visa had listed their surname as Li, L-E-E, instead of the traditional spelling L-I, which is how he got the spelling for his last name. His Chinese name means shake it up, and excite San Francisco. Little Bruce was born with two dragon birth signs, 
The dragon is considered to be powerful and associated with leadership and authority, so his father was absolutely thrilled. He was less thrilled, however, with the name Bruce as he struggled to pronounce it. Two months after his birth, Bruce had his first movie role, where he is rocked to sleep in a wicker bassinet for the movie Golden Gate Girl. The work visa had expired at this point, and they needed to prepare for the journey home, but they were worried that Bruce would be too young to travel. They also didn't want him to run into any issues in the future should he want to return to America one day. As an American-born citizen to Chinese citizens, he faced the possibility of being denied re-entry to America if they moved back to China with him. He could be considered repatriated and have his paperwork questioned in validity. His parents worked with a lawyer to have a citizen's return form completed for Bruce. They went through questioning under oath by the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services, and his reason for leaving was listed as temporary visit abroad. On April 6, 1941, Hoi Chuen, Grace, and Bruce began their journey to China to be reunited with their family. The happy reunion was not long-lived as baby Bruce, nicknamed Tiny Phoenix by his grandmother, became ill from the humid wartime environment. There was also an outbreak of cholera to be weary of, and they protectively cared for him after losing one son already. They didn't want to lose him as well. By the end of the year, Japan would invade Hong Kong the same day they attacked Pearl Harbor. Bruce's father was almost killed as he was at an opium den when a bomb dropped through the roof, landed on the bed next to him where his friend was at, smashed through the basement, but failed to detonate. I cannot imagine the experience that his father had. I mean, obviously, he was probably a little relaxed because he was at an opium den smoking opium. But to have a bomb drop through the ceiling, kill your friend, and all you can do is just pray to whatever gods you believe in that you can live and it doesn't detonate, his life must have flashed before his eyes. While the Japanese were killing thousands of people for basically just existing, Li Hui Chuan and his family were spared as the Japanese were actually quite fond of the Chinese opera. It's believed that instead of money for their performances, they would be forced to perform in exchange for a little extra rice in their food rations. The family would make the best of their circumstances during this time. With one third of the population gone, there was plenty of real estate available, so the large family was able to upgrade to a bigger apartment near a Japanese occupation headquarters, which was ironically safer, and would purchase four more apartments to have as rental properties. Before they made this move, they were living in a two-bedroom apartment with 13 people. So there was Hoi Chuen, Grace Ho, Loi Chuen's mother, and also his sister-in-law and her five children, on top of their current four children. That's a lot of people to have in a two-bedroom apartment, so I'm sure it was such a relief to be able to upgrade to a 4,000-square-foot apartment for all of these people that were living in the house together. With the amount of places that were vacant, the prices were drastically reduced, and this investment would help provide a steady income for the family for years to come. Luckily, after Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Japan's surrender on August 15, 1945, the British would come back to reclaim Hong Kong, and the city would begin to once again flourish. As people flooded back into the city by the millions, the rental prices would go back up and create a stable living for the Lee family. They were able to have a TV, fridge, a car, live-in servants, and a driver by 1950, according to Bruce's sister Phoebe. She also describes herself and her brother Bruce as extroverted, while Peter and Agnes were more introverted. After the liberation and Bruce's health improved, his nickname would change to Never Sit Still as he was described as a whirlwind of chaos. 
He would also frequently question everything and was called Y-Baby as a result. The only thing that would calm him down were kung fu comic books and sword and sorcery martial arts novels. His love of reading not only gave the family a few hours of quiet, but is a passion that stuck with him throughout his life. Aside from the rental properties and stage acting, Hoi Chuan would break into the movies in the late 1940s. He was one of the few to come out unscathed as he bravely refused to participate in a Chinese propaganda film during the invasion. He would bring the children with him to set on occasion, and Bruce would climb everywhere so he could touch everything. One of the actresses, Fang So Po, recalled that he was so naughty they had to teach him hand games to distract him. Because of his adventures on set with his father, Bruce would be cast in his first movie at six years old, where he was a runaway boy who becomes a pickpocket and is then run over by a truck in the movie The Birth of Mankind, released in 1946. He earned the stage name Little Hoi Twin after appearing with his father in the film Wealth is Like a Dream in 1948, which sparked a desire for Bruce to one day outshine his father. For his fifth film, My Son A. Chang, also titled The Kid, in 1950, would be Bruce's first lead role. The director came to his home to pitch the offer to his father, which was refused at first. He didn't want his son to be an actor, but after he was offered a role in the film so he could be on set and keep an eye on Bruce, he would accept the offer. His stage name would be changed because of his performance in the film. It would become Dragon Lee and would then morph into Little Dragon Lee. Bruce loved his new stage name so much he insisted his friends call him Little Dragon Lee. There were plans for a sequel that were squashed due to Hoi Chuan because Little Dragon Lee was becoming as rebellious and as difficult to handle as the characters that he was playing on screen. Bruce's troubles began when he went to Tok Sun, an all-boys Catholic school, at the age of six. He was still very small with some balance issues from his previous illness, had thick-rimmed glasses, and a fear of water. He was targeted by bullies for the earring that he wore to protect him from the boy-stealing demons his small stature, and his thick glasses. What first began as a way to defend himself against the bullies quickly became a taste for combat. He eventually went from someone you didn't want to mess with to someone that your mom told you to stay away from. One of his teachers recalled sending him on errands and giving him cleaning tasks in an attempt to wear him out before he caused any trouble. He never wanted to discipline him for his energy, but just attempt to control it. And if he had too much energy still, he was sent off to the headmaster with a note that said sending you Bruce to have a few moments of peace. Bruce hated school, and his love of reading didn't exactly transfer to the school textbooks. They attempted to get him a private tutor, but he would often skip the sessions with them. Little Dragon was more concerned with his gang, which was just his friend group that he was the leader of. They were now committing major crimes, but they were getting into fights and had a love for pranking people. He acted as a protector for those who followed him, and they would in turn help with his homework. Because of the mischief and poor grades, his parents decided to bar him from acting, which was why he couldn't do the sequel to My Son A. Chang. They kept him for movies for a year, only allowing him to be in The Beginning of Man in 1951 after a lot of begging. Since he didn't improve his behavior and kept down the wrong path, he wouldn't be in another movie until 1953. They had agreed to let him go back under contract with the Union Film Enterprises, or Chung Nguyen, which had a set group of actors they used in every film. They made films that were high quality and very socially conscious. Bruce's father agreed with their views and hoped that working with the group would have a positive effect on his son and develop a sense of humility and teamwork. Between 1953 and 1955, he would appear in 10 message-driven melodramas with them, 
and this was the most prolific three years of his entire film career. They provided Bruce with an education and how to make quality films about serious subjects in a quick amount of time, as most shoots would only last 12 days. It shaped his view on the movie business, as he would develop a passion for patriotic, educational movies about China's cultural heritage. Unfortunately, the acting group would fall apart after three years due to egos and infighting that caused the talent to go elsewhere. Bruce would turn back to fighting and mischief without the structure of work and his creative outlet. In 1956, after five years at the prestigious secondary school LaSalle, he would get suspended, which would be considered a terrible embarrassment for his family. There were quite a few accounts and theories on what led to his expulsion from the school, from fighting, outrageous outfits, to pulling a knife out at his gym teacher. So whatever the reason, and on top of being held back in school twice, resulted in his father grounding him for a year, which meant no movies, no night out with friends, only school and home. He was 15 at the time, and I think we all can recall being 15, rebellious and feeling invincible, all because our brains hadn't developed enough to tell us that we weren't. Grace would get Bruce enrolled at St. Francis Xavier, which was like a reform school, stricter discipline with Catholic brothers who were skilled in turning the lives around for tough children. Bruce was still up to his antics, out and about looking for fights, and even developing a new crew they called the SFX Teddy Boys. He would also become enamored with martial arts after it began to become more respected and mainstream in society. He knew he was a skilled fighter but had begun to doubt himself and wondered if he could hold his own without his gang of friends. He began to learn Wing Chun and the training technique called Sticky Hands. The two partners would touch forearms together and then try to block, trap, and hit their opponent while maintaining constant contact. Bruce wanted to be the best and would always strive to one day take on his masters and beat them. In an attempt to get private lessons, Bruce would show up early and then run downstairs to tell the other students their instructor wasn't available and they would have to meet on another day. His instructor, Wang Shanlueng, recalled he laughed when he figured out the ruse and didn't punish him for it. The other students weren't as pleased and protested for him to be expelled as he was Eurasian and they shouldn't be teaching Chinese Kung Fu to someone who is mixed blood. The master, Ip Man, refused to expel him and just merely suggested private lessons with Wong until things cooled down a little bit. The other students would continue to haze him for a while, but in less than a year of constantly training with Wong and on his own, he was a difficult opponent for even the senior students. They were encouraged not to share techniques they learned with each other, and if they wanted to see if something would work, then to go out and test it. As a result, Bruce and his friend Hawkins would gain attention from the police from fighting and they were put on the police list of juvenile delinquents as a result. To avoid further attention from the police, Bruce and the other young boys from rival kung fu schools would do crossing hands matches on rooftops and generally ended the matches when someone drew blood. On May 2, 1958, Bruce challenged an assistant instructor from a rival Choi Lefat school named Chung. Bruce and Wong made their way to the rooftop for the fight. The first round didn't go well for Bruce, but with encouragement from Wong, he would go back and fight the second round. He would knock out a tooth and annihilate his competition to win the match. He ended up with a black eye that he couldn't hide from his father for long, who became very upset that Bruce was wasting his life fighting. Bruce told his dad that he's not good at studying, but he's good at fighting and will fight to make a name. His master, Ip Man, praised Wong and told him if Bruce achieved something in the martial arts, it's because you didn't let him quit after the first round. This experience taught him that success does not come naturally, and you have to train and fight. As Bruce got better, 
who began to teach his classmates on the playground at SFX. They had recently formed a boxing team and had invited Bruce and Hawkins to join as they had a reputation for being the naughtiest. So why not put that towards something productive? Bruce had a few months to prepare before a tournament between his school and another. He fought to stick to the rules of boxing and was warned a few times during his match when the Wing Chun fighting style would start to come out. Even though he won the match, he was disappointed he couldn't knock out his opponent because the style of punching he was best at at the time was not powerful enough when he was wearing the boxing gloves. He didn't care for the strict rules placed on boxing and from that point on would avoid boxing matches and stick to bare knuckle crossing hands contests instead. His love of martial arts was only rivaled by his love of dancing. He would learn all of the dancing fads of the time, from the boogie-woogie to the jive. In 1957, the cha-cha would make its way from Cuba to the Philippines before making its way to Hong Kong. Bruce would find a Philippine woman who taught wealthy women to dance the cha-cha to teach him. He would keep a notebook of the moves that he learned and ones that he even created himself. Of course, Dan's contests would break out in the schoolyard as Bruce and his fellow classmates would all try to show off their best dance moves. Once Bruce thought he was better than all of his friends, he decided it was time for a dance competition. A local nightclub was sponsoring an all-Hong Kong cha-cha dance championship. And instead of picking one of his many girlfriends to dance with him, he would choose his 10-year-old brother, Robert. This was a safe choice since he wouldn't upset any of the ladies and he would also get a cute factor from the judges. Bruce set out to teach his little brother the dance routine he had perfected, and when it was time to compete, they were both confident that they could win, and they in fact did. Bruce would carry his championship flag around and show it off while bragging about being the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong. During this time, Bruce was also trying to make his transition and acting from child roles to ones more suitable for his age. It can be a difficult transition to go from child to teen and then eventually to adult. He attempted a comedy movie in 1956 for Sweet Time Together. Bruce plays a teenager pretending to be an adult who does a pretty good imitation of his childhood idol Jerry Lewis. His next role was a refined gentleman in a tragedy called Thunderstorm in 1957. This role didn't go over too well with the critics as I said his acting looked rigid and artificial. Bruce was not the refined gentleman in his life, and he struggled to play a part that was so far from his real personality. His next film, Darling Girl, also in 1957, was a walk-on role where he dances the cha-cha with his real-life dancing partner and gal pal to make her love interest jealous. His roles would drop off for at least three years, and it's not known if the roles for him had dried up or he was banned again by his father. In 1959, the government would finally push to crack down on opiates after concern over the growing amount of addicts. They were going to target opium den owners and wealthy opium smokers like Bruce's father, Hoi Chuan. It was very much a part of the culture for his father going back to his opera troupe. One day, a British officer came into the home with his subordinates and pulled out all of the opium pipes and paraphernalia until Grace paid him $500. The officer wanted money to not report him, and after that incident, Hoi Chuan decided it was time to quit. He was embarrassed and it was a sign to him that he had hit rock bottom. He would detox at home by at first reducing his consumption of the drug before eventually quitting cold turkey. However difficult his detox was, he would never touch opium again. Now that he was sober, the family turned their focus back to Bruce and his problems with violence. Bruce would wear a traditional Chinese costume and roam the streets looking for a fight. 
With the city infested with the Triad Gang, they weren't too worried about a teenager picking fights until he picked one with the wrong person in 1959. The teenager he beat up had powerful parents who called the police. The police would go to the headmaster at Bruce's school, who would then call his mother. They told her if he kept it up, they would have no choice but to arrest him. They didn't know what else to do to control the then 18-year-old Bruce at home, so they decided to utilize his American citizenship. They thought if he went back to his birthplace, he could attend high school, get his diploma, and maybe get into a local college. It looked like an opportunity for a fresh start, and without his gang of friends, he might be able to stay out of trouble. Bruce was understandably upset about being sent to America, but after he got past his emotions, he saw the situation through his parents' eyes. Nancy Kwan recalled a conversation with Bruce about this, and he saw that if he had stayed, he probably would have joined a gang and been knifed to death. The only obstacle to him leaving was that he was on the juvenile delinquent watch list, and his record had to be cleared for him to leave the country. After speaking with a police investigator, he was able to get his name cleared and started to think about the possibilities for his future. Bruce bounced around the idea of going into the medical field either as a pharmacist, doctor, or even dentistry. His father had offered to pay for his expenses, but he was still a little salty about the banishment and wanted to provide for himself. He had the idea to teach Wing Chun for money, but he had only learned up to the second form at that time, so he wasn't sure how long he'd be able to do that. He wanted to lure people in with some fancy kung fu moves, so his father arranged for him to learn northern kung fu in exchange for cha-cha lessons. Master Sang would later say it turned out to be a bad deal for him, as Bruce was an extremely fast learner, and in the two months they exchanged lessons, he could barely get the hang of a basic cha-cha step. Bruce also would change his behavior leading up to his voyage and began to focus on his schoolwork more. His mother was so thrown off by a sudden change that she called the school just to make sure he wasn't in any trouble, but the reality was that he was just finally starting to mature. Before his departure, he finally had a chance at another lead role in a movie. He would star in The Orphan, where he is obviously an orphan who becomes a pickpocket for a street gang. It is considered to be Hong Kong's version of Rebel Without a Cause. It opened in an unprecedented 11 theaters on March 3, 1960 and was a big hit. The movie was the first Hong Kong movie to break into the international market as it was shown at the Milan Film Festival. Teenage boys loved his portrayal of the character, and one high school even banned imitating Little Dragon Lee's Ah Sum in The Orphan. On April 29, 1959, Bruce headed to Victoria Harbor with one ticket on the SS President Wilson to begin his 18-day voyage to San Francisco. His family came to see him off except for his father. This wasn't because he was mad at Bruce and didn't want to. It was because of tradition. A father can't see off his son on a voyage. When the horn blew for boarding, Bruce hugged his family, friends, and girlfriend, Pearl. His mother gave him $100 and told him that if he didn't make something of himself to not come back, and he promised that he would behave and only return when he's made some money. He had come with ribbons as it was customary for the departing to hold one end of the ribbon and toss it down to the family at the dock. They hold on to each end until the boat pulled far enough for the ribbon to break. When they did break, his mother, Grace, broke down and wept uncontrollably. On May 4th, 1959, the ship would stop in Japan, where he was greeted by his older brother, who had been studying in Tokyo. His brother, Peter, would take him sightseeing, and Bruce was in awe of how advanced Japan was compared to Hong Kong. It sparked a lifelong admiration for and envy of the Japanese, which is a big change from the turmoil early in life caused by Japan. On May 17th, the ship would dock in Honolulu briefly where Bruce was greeted, this time by two Cantonese opera actors that were friends of his father. 
He was introduced to a wealthy benefactor who envied Bruce's skill and knowledge of Wing Chun, and he hoped that he could stay in Hawaii so he could teach Bruce his style of boxing. He even offered to help him find a school to teach at. Bruce would make a few friends on his voyage as well and was asked to teach a cha-cha class for the first class passengers. He would finally arrive in San Francisco where he would meet his father's friend, Mr. Kwan, who performed with him during his time in America. The arrangement was made for Bruce to stay with him until he went to Seattle to finish his high school education. As he was guided through Chinatown, he observed how everything was so similar, but just the slightest bit off. When they arrived at the apartment, Bruce was suddenly hit with the realization that he was third world rich and first world poor. There were no more servants, and the living situation felt even more cramped than his modest home with 13 people. He tried to work at a restaurant across the street, but having no work experience except for acting, he only lasted a week. He turned to teaching, which honestly is something he was just destined for. Instead of Wing Chun classes as he had thought of before he left, he actually began to teach cha-cha dance classes. He couldn't help but slip in some demonstrations in the class intermissions, and they were impressed by his speed and skill. A dance student who had studied Gung Fu for 15 years told him when he gets back from Seattle, he would like to start a class and have Bruce teach Wing Chun. Bruce's brother Peter arrived in America to make sure Bruce was settled and established at the request of his family. Bruce had confirmed his citizenship status, gotten a driver's license, had spending money from his classes, and seemed to be staying out of trouble. Feeling okay about leaving his brother to prepare to get ready for school, Peter would head to the University of Wisconsin to work on his PhD in physics. I'm going to go ahead and leave Bruce's story here as we've covered his early life pretty well. Bruce is starting to shift to a mature young man and breaking away from his troubled youth, which mostly revolved around fighting and pulling pranks on people. He has freshly arrived in America, and next week we're going to talk about his schooling, meeting his wife, his evolution in martial arts training, which is pretty fascinating, and his struggle to revive his acting career before his tragic early passing. Bruce's never-ending energy and dislike towards school reminds me of my youngest child. I'm lucky to not have to deal with the constant fighting, though. It's funny how you can learn about a person and find correlations to your own life. I'm looking forward to bringing you the rest of his story, but I hope that you've enjoyed it so far. As always, if you have any suggestions on future stories, please send them in to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. I would love to know what you want to hear next. You can follow me on Instagram at staylor underscore BTE and Twitter at BTE underscore pod. And thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week for part two. This has been Beyond the Entertainment.